we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that the Creator has endowed with them certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Good work. Your grade school, social studies teachers would be very, very proud um, because these words are learned, right, across our country. And they have really, I think, become to identify or define the American ideal. Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Isaiah, and, and in it, we read God's ideal picture for governance. And so I want you to, to hear that um, as I read to you. Um, listen carefully. From Isaiah chapter 10. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what, he, what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall, shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with rod, the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall lie with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, and their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to all the peoples. The nations shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious." Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This text from Isaiah, it raises three questions for us this morning. What is the ideal? What is reality? And what does all of this have to do with Advent? I believe our scripture this morning paints the ideal in, in, in three different phases. Uh, there is this ideal of a leader that is spelled out in the first couple of verses of our passage this morning. And then there is what this leader's ideal rule will look like. What are the characteristics and then finally, what this ideal 
kingdom will become. In describing the ideal leader, Isaiah writes this in verses 2 and 3. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, I think when we think of qualities of a good leader, I think a lot of those qualities that are named there, I think, make sense to us, right? We look at wisdom and understanding of, of counsel, of someone who's a good advisor. We want all of those qualities in a leader. But, but what about fear? Fear of the Lord. What, what do we do with that? A British Old Testament scholar, Ronald Ernest Clemens, uh, defines this fear of the Lord as reverent humility. Reverent humility, or, or taking on God's purposes, taking God's purposes into account. So this, this ideal leader will see God's purposes as bigger. This ideal leader will see God's purposes as, as, as their own. God's purposes will be greater than personal, self-serving purposes. But the writer goes on to say this. He says that, the delight will be in the fear of the Lord. The delight. This, uh, this past Monday, um, I, I was coming back. I'd had lunch with our small group, and I uh, parked the car at the house. And before walking back over here to the office, I, I went inside to put a ham in the oven for dinner that night. And so I, I put the ham in the oven, and I came back to, to the office and worked that afternoon and then went home to check on the ham and grab Amy and Hannah, and we were going to go to a children's ministry event together uh, before we had dinner. And I walked into the house, and I opened the door, and I was overwhelmed by the welcoming smell of ham cooking. Uh, you know, we laugh, but, but it was this, this sense of joy and, and well-being that, that filled my soul with this smell. And it's not just that I'm a pork enthusiast, <laughs> which I am, uh, but uh, it was more than that. I, I was transported back to the Christmas time of my, of my childhood, breathing in those, those otherworldly aromas. It was, uh, it was almost out of body. <laughs> but are there, are there those aromas for you that, that do that, that transport you back, that, that fill you with a, a sense of joy that you feel out into your fingertips and down to your toes, this feeling? What are those for you? Because that is what is meant by delighting here in the book of Isaiah, this Hebrew word that gets translated as delight, it's, it's related to the Hebrew idea and word for smell. It means this thing, this experience that we have that fills us, that we feel in the very tips of our toes and fingers, this delight. And so this uh, Jewish ideal leader is going to be somebody who they have this joy in God's purposes, 
and how they experience working towards what God is doing. Gosh, what would that look like to lead like that, to be that? But what is the reality? Or what is the reality here for the, for the Jewish people? Here in the book of Isaiah, where we, where we find it and, and where Isaiah is making these prophecies, the, the kingdom, the empire of Assyria has already conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And the kingdom of Judah in, in the south is, is essentially under seas. They are, they are being attacked by uh, different empires. They're going to fall in the next century. Right? They have been plagued by poor rulers, by king after self-serving king. The reality is very, very far from the ideal that Isaiah is talking about. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that the creator has endowed us with these certain inalienable rights, among them life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. If that's our ideal, what is our reality? Is every person free in their pursuit of happiness? Or... Do injustices remain in our own system of government? And let me press further. Are, are there injustices that have been there so long that we are numb to them, that, that we're blind to them? Do these questions make you uncomfortable? They make me uncomfortable to ask. Alfred Delp was a Jesuit priest, and as a matter of fact, today marks the 75th anniversary, today, December 8th, it's the 70th anniversary of his taking his final Jesuit priest's vows. He took them in secret in a German prison in the time of the Nazis. December 8, 1944, Alfred Delp took his final priestly vows. He was being held uh, as a co-conspirator in the attempt to assassinate Adolf Hitler, and he was ultimately hanged uh, just a couple of months later. But his writings from prison were actually smuggled out. And, and so we have them. And, and many of them have to do with Advent. Um, because here he was in December, Christmas time, in Advent, uh, in this prison. And in one of these writings, he, he wrote these words about the society where he was there in, in, in Nazi Germany at the time, but I think speak to us in all times. The great question to us is whether we are still capable of being truly shocked 
or whether it is to remain so that we see thousands of things and know that they should not be and must not be and that we get hardened to them. How, how many things have become used, excuse me, how many things have we become used to in the course of the years of the weeks and months so that we stand unshocked, unstirred, or inwardly unmoved? So friends, let me ask that again. Are there injustices within our own system of government, governance, within our society, within our culture that we've become so used to that we no longer see them, that we stand unshocked, unstirred, inwardly unmoved? And how will we know? Right? What voices will shock us into movement? The, the gospel text for today, if, if you read this morning's lectionary reading from the gospel, is, is the well-known selection from Matthew 3. And it's that there is a voice crying in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. It's the, his words of John the Baptist. John the Baptist is calling the people of Israel to repent for the coming of Christ. Who, who is our John the Baptist now? Who is this prophetic voice that's going, to, that's going to shock us, that's going to stir us, that's going to move us from this place of numbness? Now, certainly, it, it does not take much searching to find voices of shock, voices of outrage. We find them in in a variety of news outlets, both in, in print and on the air. We find them in, in social media, amongst our peers. Sometimes those voices are even our own. For many, outrage has just become a part of daily discourse. Uh, John Van Bavel of New York, uh, of NYU, and uh, William Brady, a, a Yale uh, psychologist, they've been doing this joint study on outrage in social media. It was featured in a 2019 uh, episode of the podcast Hidden Brain, hosted by Shankar Vedantam. And what they found in, in the case of Twitter, listen to this, is that for every moral and emotional word used, uh, that's, that's words like hate, like evil or shame. Uh, certainly profanity is included in that category of moral and emotional words. For every of those words used in a tweet, it increased the likelihood of retweeting by 15 to 20 percent. 15 to 20 percent for each appearance of one of those words, which is positive feedback to the person tweeting, right? This, this feedback mechanism of, of, I like what you've said. This goes the same for uh, likes in, or, or shares in Facebook, which then leads to more outrage. And, and, and given the model by which social media outlet, outlets generate, uh, generate income, um, which is advertising, right? So it's the, the longer that you are engaged and longer that you are viewing, the more uh, advertising income that comes in, right? This is the, the, the model. Um, this has really become an unintended consequence is that this is good for business. This type of behavior, these type of statements. There's no motivation to curb it, 
It's incumbent upon us. And interestingly, they, they, they find that this type of communication is, is highly effective within an echo chamber. This type of emotional language is, is highly effective in drumming up support from people who already believe what you believe. But it does very little in the way of actual persuasion. And not only does this type of communication do very little to persuade what studies are finding, according to Vedantum, is that people are actually losing the ability to prioritize what to care about because, as he puts it, the volume on everything is turned to 11. With so much noise, how do we really discern what is outrageous? How do we discern which voices to listen to? So let me ask you this. What would it look like for you to, to take a step back from participating in the, in the outrage? What would it look like uh, for you to take a step back from, from retweeting the tweet, from liking the post? Or how about this one that I hadn't mentioned yet, forwarding on that email of an, some anecdotal story that, that backs up what you believe? What would it look like for you to, to take a step back from your own echo chambers and rather participate in real conversation, participate in real discussion with, with unemotional language, in order to discern the heart of God. To discern where God is at work and where God is leading. And where do we begin? Right here in, in verse 3, we begin by delighting in the fear of the Lord, by finding joy in God's purposes, joy that we feel in our every fiber in order to create a world that is no longer governed based on, on mutual self-interest, but rather on a mutual commitment to God and God's purposes. Can we see ourselves as followers of Christ first? Can we seek justice and righteousness together? And hear this critical piece, God's justice neither belongs uh, to the rich or to the poor. God's justice does not belong to Republicans or Democrats. God's justice is separate and apart. Friends, this means that we've got to be willing to have hard conversations. It means that policies that, that are not self-serving. It means hard work. <clears throat> It means those conversations that make our chests tighten, that make us anxious because they're hard. But what if this church could be that kind of place? What if this church could be a place where these kinds of conversations happen among people? A place where people of differing views could seek God's kingdom first, regardless of political affiliations. 
Hear what Isaiah says about what the kingdom of God is going to look like. The wolf shall live with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the kid. The calf and the lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And perhaps... Isaiah might now add, and where the Republican and Democrat work together for the good of the community. Amen. Friends, this is the promise of Advent. It's that the ideal kingdom of God will one day come to fruition despite the anger, the outrage, the bitterness, and acrimony that we see today. You know, I'm not sure that I would have fully appreciated Isaiah's description of what this kingdom's going to look like until I became a father. But, but hear this, this passage again and, and hear this through the, kind of see this through the lens of being charged with the care of this child. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. Picture that for a moment. You're perhaps looking from a distance as this child that you're cared with, not understanding the danger of a poisonous snake, begins to put their hand closer and closer. You see it creeping closer and closer. (sighs) I had a tough time just typing those words when I was preparing it. It makes our skin crawl. Uh, but, But this is the reality that Isaiah is communicating. It's that the nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp and we can bear to watch because we know that the sting of death has been removed. The ultimate threat is gone. And the ideal kingdom, the weapon, no longer has its sting What are those real threats that bear down on you even now? Those threats to your your joy. Those things that make your chest clench and tighten when you consider. Because the promise of Advent is that the kingdom, the ideal kingdom, is coming. In the same letter from prison, shortly before his execution, Delp wrote these words. Just beyond the horizon, the eternal realities stand silent in their age-old longing. And there shines on us the first mild light of the radiant fulfillment to come. From afar, sound the first notes as of pipes and singing, not yet discernible as a song or melody. It's still far off and only just announced and foretold. But it is happening. This is today and tomorrow. The angels will tell what has happened with loud rejoicing voices and we shall know it and be glad. 
if we have believed and trusted in Advent. Friends, this is the truth and this is the promise of Advent. Christ is coming. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Gracious Heavenly Father, help us to trust in the promise of Advent. Help us also to delight in the fear of the Lord. God, to delight in your purposes, understanding, God, that we are co-laborers here. Lord, that you have placed us here to be a city on a hill. Lord, that you have placed us here to join in with what you are doing, that we might play a part in your redemptive purposes. God, help us to see beyond sight, to trust in your sure promise, and that we might know that Christ is coming. Amen.